Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, saving lives or flooding the streets with cheap opioids. Crime and chaos, drugs and disorder rage in our streets. The House debates a conservative motion to end the government's safe drug supply program. Coming up, the Minister for Mental Health and Addictions who says the program is saving lives and the knee-jerk reactions need to stop. Also, with 10 days left in the Alberta campaign, the UCP and NDP leaders will meet face-to-face tonight. What does each need to do to influence such a tight race? And. We'll convene our journalist panel to explore the big issues of the week. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The government's safe supply drug program came under close scrutiny today as members of the House debated a conservative motion to shut it down and redirect the money to recovery. Now, the Liberals say the program does save lives and helps users get healthier, but Conservatives argue the numbers say otherwise and the program is just flooding the streets with cheap drugs. The Minister is quite right when she heckles out that these people have died. They have died under her watch. They have died under this Prime Minister as he has flooded the streets with powerful heroin-like drugs that are paid for by tax dollars and have funded a black market for fentanyl and killed so many people. Well, joining us now is Dr. Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Minister, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. Uh, you know this. Uh, Pierre Poliev uh, says that you and your government are essentially perpetuating a, a crisis here by subsidizing these drugs and giving users access to them. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it, it, the evidence doesn't show that at all. Uh, he has some anecdotal um, stories uh, that is making actually the, the safe supply community pretty annoyed, as we saw in the London Free Press today. It is about uh, doing what works. This is a very different situation than it was even in 2019. The drug supply out there is poisoned and people are dying using. And so we, it's about replacing as uh, uh, this poisoned drug supply uh, with a pharmaceutical grade medicine um, so that they can stabilize and so they can think about uh, life uh, differently from the, the hustle and, and it, you know, I, I was thinking, Michael, that 40 years ago people fought against methadone, 20 years ago people fought against Suboxone. More recently there's the, the, you know, the possibility of sublocate, but this is about keeping people alive long enough because people are dying. And, and the people that are in the safe supply programs are people who are losing their friends. And they've decided to try something new, to step inside to a, to a health setting where somebody knows their name, somebody cares about them, somebody really cares that they don't die, and, and are prepared to offer them um, the kinds of supports they need. 46,000 overdoses have been reversed in safe consumption sites. That also gives somebody using drugs the opportunity to develop a trusting relationship such that they can actually get the hope that allows them to make real choices in their life going forward. So okay. 
Well, let me let me ask you to do a compare and contrast here, because you know the the argument uh, that uh, Pierre Polyev is making is that he would like your government to essentially take the money that's being invested into this safe uh, drug supply, reinvest that money instead into treatment and social programs. He calls that common sense. How do you compare and contrast what your program does versus what he uh, says should be the priority here? Well, I think that we lived for 10 years with the Conservative government taking harm reduction out of the internationally accepted drug policy, which is prevention, um, harm reduction, treatment and enforcement. So what we now know is that the people on the ground, the people with lived and living experience are furious that this this debate is even continuing to polarize harm reduction versus treatment. Everybody knows we need both. We need treatment and we need um, aftercare and we need social supports and housing and all of the things that help with the, the complex conditions where people with severe mental illness who are using substances need to stay on their medicine for their mental illness as well as get supports for their substance use. This is so um, stigmatizing uh, for this debate to continue as though it's either or. That people need, with the opioid use disorder, need treatment like any other medical condition. And it means compassion, it means somebody who cares about them, and somebody who will follow the evidence to get them the best care possible. Okay, I'm going to ask you another ish, uh, point that Pierre Polyev makes, because he argues that the safe dr drug supply, uh, that again is subsidized, is actually being resold so that users can use that money to buy the drugs they actually want, things like uh, the drugs that are laced with fentanyl. What do you say to that? Because it's actually not just Pierre Polyev, but that's also been uh, reported by other media. Diversion is, is an issue, there's no question, but it, diversion is an issue with prescribed medicine from the doctors and from the pharmacy, that this is about a problem, but selling drugs is illegal. Diversion is illegal. That, that, that is something that has to be, be dealt with differently than how we get people to, to be able to stay alive long enough to be able to get comprehensive care. So it's a matter of, of uh, that, and I think in the, the piece today with uh, Dr. Sereda, I mean, to be selling what they are saying as very cheap drugs in order to buy drugs that are more expensive, there, there's not a lot of evidence for that. But there is evidence of diversion, and we will address that uh, with enforcement. But that doesn't mean that you can't give people compassionate care and get them the kind of treatment they need in order to be able to stabilize and get on to, to a, a, a better life. So it, it's, it's, it's actually quite heartless. And what the parts of the debate today were so infuriating in terms of this stigma, how this is stigmatizing people that use drugs. We're supposed to be lowering the barriers so that they can see their path to, to being able to to step inside and, and go to a safe consumption site, go to, to a safe supply. And that, that the, I, you know, I keep asking, you know, if safe consumption has re reversed 46,000 overdoses since 2017, what do you say to those people that wouldn't be alive today, like Guy Fischella and the people who, who 
have overdosed a number of times and now on a, are on a good path. So, so, so yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how do you square that then with the number that uh, the Conservative leader was quoting in the House? This idea that the number of opioid deaths have actually gone numerically up year after year. Well, it, it, to be fair, Michael, it went down a tiny bit in, in 2019. And then we had COVID and all of that where harm reduction was more difficult to, to access. But mainly, that is when this poison drug supply came in. That It used to be that people would use drugs for a long time and, and die of something else. Now this drug supply is so poisoned that you have people who've fallen off a roof and are on medicine and, and they get cut off their meds and they go to the street for their drugs and they are dying. And so that, this is, you know, I think the stigmatization and, and just the lack of compassion about people using drugs. And when you look at Mom Stop the Harm or the people who are, are really proposing the kinds of changes in policy that, that we and, uh, and so many as so many governments across the country are trying to do is actually evidence-based. And, and I don't think that I'll take the articles in the CMAJ to, to help me decide what to do, not an article in the National Post. Which I, which I understand, I'm quickly losing time, but, but I do want to ask you, given the fact that this was debated in the House today for quite some time, I'm wondering if there's any point that was raised whatsoever by any opposition member, conservative or otherwise, that you perhaps will consider, perhaps reevaluate about the program and how it's delivered? I just hope that the, that the leader of the opposition will meet uh, with, with the mom stop the harm when they're here on the Hill on June 1st. I think they need to read what Ben Perrin is writing and, 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 and saying in terms of this failed conservative ideology. He was the public safety advisor to Stephen Harper, that people are changing their minds in, in, a, in a good way in terms of stopping the stigma and, and following the evidence and, and dealing um, with people using drugs with compassion and trying to keep them alive. Minister Bennett, really appreciate the time this evening. Thank you for that. Thank you. Well, to the other stories making headlines tonight, starting with the G7 summit in Japan. The Prime Minister has now joined other leaders for three days of talks in Hiroshima. Chinese economic and security threats are on the agenda, so are nuclear threats, the response to Russia, and support for Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is expected to join the summit virtually. The parliamentary budget officer says new clean fuel regulations could boost gas prices by up to 17 cents a litre by 2030. The PBO projects those higher prices having a bigger impact on lower income Canadians and in provinces that rely more on fossil fuels. The federal regulations come into effect on July the 1st and already the Conservative leader is calling it a second carbon tax. But the Environment Minister says the PBO has an unbalanced report, ignoring the cost of climate change. It revealed that the first carbon tax will cost 41 cents a litre. And now that there's a second carbon tax of 17 cents a litre, and then when you add the, the HST on those two taxes, you get a total new 
tax increase of 61 cents a litre, costing $2,000 a family. How are Canadians going to be able to pay their bills after this new and latest Liberal tax hike? The Honourable Minister of the Environment. Mr. Speaker, I would like to quote from the Parliamentary Budget Officer's own analysis, which, and I quote, does not attempt to account for the economic and environmental costs of climate change. He's looking, the, the Parliamentary Budget Officer is looking at one side of the ledger, Mr. Speaker, without looking at the other side of the, the ledger. And we know that climate change is already costing Canadians billions of dollars every year. In fact, Mr. Speaker, tens of billions of dollars every year. Of course, if you're the Conservative Party of Canada, you don't believe in climate change and you don't care that those costs to Canadians. But unfortunately, facts are facts, Mr. Speaker, and those costs are real to all Canadians. Well, joining us now is Marika Walsh, parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail, Joël Denis Bellevance, Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse, and Joanna Smith, Ottawa Bureau Chief for The Canadian Press. Hello to the three of you. So listen, let's quickly talk uh, about this uh, clean fuel regulation, this, this fuel levy which conservatives are describing as a second carbon tax. Here we have the PBO saying it's going to cost families on average about $1,000 more per year and that it's going to hit low-income families even harder. Uh, a quick go-around here. How bad is this for the Trudeau government as Canadians continue to struggle with affordability? Marika, I'll ask you to start. Well, I think a, a, a bit right now is a communications challenge for the government. It is a price on carbon that is layered on other carbon taxes. The environment minister tried to dispute that this week by calling it a price on pollution. Well, that's a price on carbon. So it is um, something that the government, I think, is caught a bit flat-footed in the last few months on remembering that it now needs to make the case for these policies because Pierre Polyev is the new opposition leader and he is opposed to these policies and has promised to ax them. And so they need to be able to make the case and they're struggling to do so. And I'll note that despite the fact that the federal government was disputing the PBO's report, that's the budget watchdog's report on this, it actually very closely reflects what the government's own analysis from last year says about the exact same policy. So, so far, they're struggling, I think, to explain it. Joe, mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with Marika. It's also a problem because the government says this is necessary to fight climate change. They're not making the link uh, uh, in a very convincing manner. And Pierre Polyev has an advantage on this because if this price increase has an effect on inflation, he will be able to point out your policies is fueling inflation and is hurting ordinary Canadians. So we'll see in the next few months how it affects inflation. But usually when the price of gas goes up, it does affect inflation. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, even during the, the Liberal Convention, some were, were admitting to me, you know, the party has a communications yeah. issue. And so this will certainly fall into that. Joanna, what do you think of it? I was uh, talking to my colleague, Mia Rabson, our energy reporter, about this. Who And, and she made a really good point. There's, there's some schools of thought that you shouldn't be doing carbon pricing and clean fuel regulations at the same time, essentially pick a lane. But what has happened was Canada has come relatively late to the carbon pricing game. And um, you know, if they want to be able to meet those emissions reductions target, they do need to bring in more than one stick. I think the other thing missing from the PBO analysis is the cost of climate change itself, right? Um, and, and so the Conservatives are conveniently ignoring that, but I think Liberals are ignoring the, the pricing pit and the affordability angle at their own peril too. They are having mm -hmm. a communication challenge. We are not necessarily going to see the economic benefit of these investments in clean tech for maybe another seven to ten years, right? So what are they doing in the interim? Um, I found it interesting that PBO himself has said he doesn't love how either party really is spinning these analyses. He says this is looking at one issue, you need to look at it in a macro way, and I think both of them are, are choosing their points uh, selectively. Yeah, they're both simplifying it, right? They're yeah. both trying to pick and choose which details and which facts 
form their narrative rather than giving the whole picture, the liberals, for example, acknowledging that there is some cost, but saying the cost is worth it, and here's why. They haven't done that part of it. Okay, well, speaking of costs, we know that there's a big cost attached to to the Stellantis EV battery plant right now, the work on hold there in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, we know Stellantis is looking for more money after the Volkswagen deal. But, you know, Joël Denis, given the perceived importance of this plant for future work in the Windsor area, and really for the automobile industry in this country, does the Liberal government have any choice but to basically fold to the demands Stellantis is making? I think they have no choice. They set the bar with the uh, uh, Volkswagen deal and it was, they wanted to keep it uh, confidential for the longest time to prevent other companies to know what Volkswagen got out of the federal government. Now it's out of the open and so other companies who may have plans to invest in Canada will be demanding the same thing. So the federal government with putting its uh, cards on the table, everybody can see what they have in store for other companies. And <clears throat> guess what? It's a race to get those companies to invest in Canada as opposed to the United States to make sure that we have the plants of the future that will build the <clears throat> cars of the future. So I think the options for the federal government are pretty limited. One advice that I can give them is do not fight publicly with the Ontario government because that will only uh, scare investors if you are fighting with other governments about how much money should be put on the table. So I think they'll have to swallow their pride and probably give way to what the Stellantis is uh, demanding. Yeah, let's pick up on that point, though, because uh, the federal government, as we heard Christian Freeland just say, uh, you know, uh, we want Ontario to step up and pay their fair share. But, you know, from Ontario's point of view, they're giving uh, Stellantis this exact same amount that they gave to VW, $500 million. What argument is there that, that would compel Ontario to give more to this, Joanna? I think the fact that the shovels were already in the ground is, I think, a calculation the federal government was making, maybe on both the Stellantis and the Ontario side, that maybe their risk-benefit analysis is, well, no one's going to pull out of this now that we've actually started. Um, both industry minister Champagne and finance minister Christian Freeland have made the point that these two projects, Volkswagen and Stellantis, are largely to the benefit of Ontario in terms of number and jobs and economic um, things happening there. Um, I think they need to be mindful about how other provinces might feel about that, and that's something the Bloc Québécois has raised in the House of Commons. Um, so I think at this point, like, the deal's already really kind of done. It's just a matter of who pays for what. Um, and I can, you know, I think, I think the feds initially, obviously they thought this was all done and dusted before the Volkswagen thing came along and before the US IRA Inflation Reduction Act came along. Um, they now have to pivot, they now have to change, and I think they keep saying they don't want to negotiate in public. Um, they are clearly negotiating in public in terms of making it clear they want Ontario to pay a little bit more. But one thing is clear, if I may quickly, yeah. Ottawa cannot afford to lose that company because the signal would be very bad. And at a time when the industry minister is trying to attract more companies, if one of the nature of the stature of Stanley's leaves Canada, that's not good news. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, but I do wonder, Marika, and I'll ask you to, to, to come in at this point, what is being said about this precedent? Because it is a very expensive precedent that's been set when you look at the deal given to mm -hmm. VW. I think that's exactly it, and, and this goes way beyond Stellantis, right? For what the government now does for the next decade as it's competing with the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. The government, when it announced the VW funding, kind of pegged it as a boutique one-off or sort of one of a few that might be coming down the road, not as the new standard. And what Stellantis is saying is actually the U.S. has set the standard and if you want us to even consider you, you have to meet that standard. And so how that translates to the next 10 years of investments that the federal government wants to attract through its budget measures that it rolled out just a few months ago 
is very unclear in terms of the cost that the government's willing to accept for it. Yeah, well, let alone the cost of even developing a critical minerals industry, because that's the, the other big part of this. Uh, listen, uh, we're quickly, quickly losing time here, but before we go, I, I also want to talk about, because we're, we're now fast approaching the d deadline for David Johnston to, to submit his, his report to the Prime Minister as to how we're supposed to move forward on foreign interference. But as we wait for that uh, report to come out, we now know that Pierre Poliev has uh, decided not to speak with David Johnston. Uh, what do you make uh, of that move? Principled, political theater, uh, Marika? I think it's political strategy, right? He, from the start, has tried to discredit whatever comes from David Johnson, discredit the position he has, discredit his role. And so not meeting with him, refusing to do so, just feeds into that strategy and gives him a lot of leeway to say whatever he wants when the actual recommendations come out on Tuesday. Okay. I, I, I have a very strong view on this one. I think it, it's a bit shocking that Mr. Poliev chose not to meet Mr. Johnson because of who he is and who he was in the past. He's the former governor general. I think he likes and respects institutions. And just to point out that the Bloc Québécois leader, Yves-François Blachette, a separatist, chose to meet Mr. Johnson to discuss this. So if a separatist leader is interested in that, why not the future Prime Minister of Canada? That's mm -hmm. mm -hmm. a good question. Uh, Joanna? I think it's both theater and principle. I think from the start he made that decision that um, this was going to be something he wasn't going to give any credibility to. Um, that started happening before we even knew who was chosen as a special rapporteur, right? Um, and so I think it is only just logically consistent for him to now refuse to meet him. Otherwise, he would be undermining his entire strategy from, from the start. Okay. Uh, I have a surprise question for you at the end because I actually have a bit more time here. And I do want to ask because, as I said, this deadline is fast approaching. When I think about it, I, I, I find it hard to, to think that David Johnson can come to any other conclusion but to call for a public inquiry uh, because the, the demands for it is coming from every corner. And it's not as if this issue has diminished uh, since the, the report started coming out at the end of last year. Uh, future cast here, Marika, what do you think might happen uh, come Tuesday? I don't know what will happen come Tuesday, but I do think that if he doesn't recommend an inquiry, that's even more difficult for the prime minister's office because he has said he will do whatever David Johnson recommends. And so the pressure will only mount on him if he does not. I don't think it closes the door. It doesn't put a bow on this issue, which is what the Liberals want. They want to find a way to put this on the back burner rather than the front burner. And so there is a lot of risk in that, given how much the Prime Minister has tied himself to whatever Mr. Johnson says. I think the fundamental question that Mr. Johnson is asking himself, what does we need to make sure that Canadians keep faith in their institution? Mm -hmm. And that question, I think, will be uh, at the forefront of what is his uh, recommendation. And I agree with your assessment that he will recommend an independent public inquiry. Yeah. And Joanna? I agree with them both. I think an inquiry will be recommended. And I, I do also think that's what the Liberals secretly really want. Um, not only does it put things on the back burner, but it kind of gives some control to them in terms of um, perhaps having some sway over the terms of reference. There, there could be a way for Johnson to describe the inquirer, whoever, whoever ends up being, sorry, the, the commissioner, um, to write it in a way that it maybe is perhaps more focused on policy than on accountability. Those will be things that we will be watching, right, in terms of, of how it's set up. But I think it, it kicks the can down a little ro the road a little bit and um, gives the liberals a thing to point to. Okay. Well, of course, we are watching. And for uh, our discussion that we just had, Marika, Jordani, Joanna, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you.
To Alberta now as the UCP leader Danielle Smith will square off with the NDP leader Rachel Notley tonight, a leaders debate that takes place with just over a week left in the provincial campaign. Now from the beginning, pollsters said this was going to be a tight race and the latest numbers suggest that remains true today. So what does each leader need to accomplish with this debate? To break that down, we're now joined by polls analyst Eric Grenier, the man behind the writ. Eric, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Listen, I want to begin with Danielle Smith because her day did start out with this report from Alberta's ethics commissioner. And the commissioner concluded that Smith violated conflict of interest rules by speaking with her justice minister. And this was about a preacher who was charged for inciting protesters at the Coots blockade. He uh, was subsequently found guilty of mischief. But I wonder, how does this help or hinder her campaign going into tonight's debate? Uh, it certainly doesn't help. Uh, whether it's going to hurt her a lot, I guess, is an open question, because this is a story that Albertans would have already been familiar with, and probably a lot of them would have already made up their minds about whether what Daniel Smith did in this in, in this case was appropriate or not. So I'm not sure if it's going to change any minds. But the problem for Daniel Smith in this is that it is putting this story back into the news. It's going to be a lot harder for Daniel Smith to uh, deny uh, talking about it because there's an investigation going on. It's going to certainly come up in the debate. So it is, uh, it's digging up a story that Daniel Smith would have preferred to have remained buried for the rest of this campaign. But whether it's going to really change any minds for Albertans, I think most Albertans probably have already made up their mind about it. Okay, so so uh, let's pick up on that, though, because, you know, obviously we're speaking about Danielle Smith. It goes to qualities of leadership. Where do the two leaders stand? Uh, what are the polls saying about the, the perceived strengths and weaknesses of each? Well, we're seeing that uh, both Daniel Smith and Rachel Notley are pretty polarizing. There is about as many Albertans who like them as dislike them. Uh, for Daniel Smith, we've seen that her numbers have gotten a little bit worse as the campaign has rolled on. Polls that ask whether people's opinions have improved or worsened since the beginning of the campaign, all of them are showing that Daniel Smith is getting more people who say their opinion has worsened, whereas Rachel Notley's more or less breaking even. Even some of the polls show that uh, there's a net improvement in her in her uh, in her image. But in terms of the strength and weaknesses of both of them, you see in polls when asked which leader do Albertans trust to handle this issue or another, Daniel Smith, uh, Daniel Smith does better on issues like crime and public safety, on the economy, whereas Rachel Notley does well on health care, education, the environment, things like that. So I think that is what we'll probably see as the focus of each of their talking points in the debate. Uh, but I really do think that this campaign comes down to a question of character and judgment rather than on the issues. Oh, okay, so that said, what is important then or for each candidate? What do they actually need to do in tonight's debate? Well, for Daniel Smith, she needs to turn around some of these numbers that we've been seeing that people are not liking what they're seeing as this campaign unfolds for Daniel Smith. The biggest problem for her is that there's not a lot of enthusiasm among her base for her. We see in polls that New Democrats are much more interested and enthusiastic about voting for the NDP than uh, UCP voters are in voting for the UCP. So she needs to make sure that she's not putting off those people who are kind of reluctant to vote for her, kind of throwing, uh, holding their nose to vote for her, that they still need to come out because even if they don't like her all that much, they'll dislike a government uh, under the NDP even more. For Rachel Notley, she does have a good issue on the issue of judgment and character for Daniel Smith. Uh, voters uh, suggest in the polls that Rachel Notley is more trusted on things like integrity and ethics. Uh, so if she can keep hammering home the message that you can't trust Daniel Smith for another four years, that you'd never know what she's going to do or say next, 
that could be a pretty powerful uh, message for the New Democrats. And so far, it seems to be working in terms of dragging Dan Daniel Smith's personal numbers, but it hasn't moved the polls yet. Okay, not yet. And uh, there's only about 10 days of campaigning before voting day. Uh, what will you be watching out for then, Eric? Well, I guess it will be to see uh, what approach the two leaders are going to take. This is Rachel Notley's third debate as a leader since she's been around for uh, since before the 2015 election. And she was able to use the debate in 2015 with Jim Prentice to her advantage. There was that uh, famous uh, uh, math is difficult comment that Jim Prentice made that uh, really kind of crystallized the issue that uh, the PCs were looking arrogant and out of touch. Uh, so for Rachel Notley, whether she can get Daniel Smith to do something like that again. And for Daniel Smith, it's about whether she can really just hold her own for a two-hour debate, not make any mistakes, not say anything that is going to get her into trouble, because she tends to say things that get her into trouble. She was at a candidate forum uh, in her own riding just a few days ago, talking about mortgage rates and, again, saying things that didn't really make all that much sense. So uh, for her, it's just about being disciplined. And for Rachel Notley, it's about taking advantage of whatever th Daniel Smith says over the course of the debate. That could just be another controversy uh, that unfolds over the next few days. Okay. Well, we're watching. People can watch the debate right here on CPAC. Uh, Eric Grenier, thank you for the time. Thank you. And that is it for our program on this Thursday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Up next, Julie Van Dusen with L'Essentiel.